This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. My name is Thomas Cordwell. In the cave with me tonight are Cerise Howard and Emma Westwood. Alex Helen Nicholas won't be here tonight and she won't be here for the next few weeks either. So it's just going to be the three of us for a little while. But I reckon we can do okay, don't you? How are you both this evening? Splendid. I'm Tom? missing Alex. Mm, that's true. Yeah, no, I'm sad. Actually. I, I revised my initial <laughs> statement. <laughs> I've gone from splendid to sad, just like that. Thanks, Emma. <laughs> so, Alex, if you're listening, this is what you've done. <laughs> Let's get the mood up again, though, because it's April, and April in Triple R means it's April amnesty time. This is sort of like the soft version of the Radiothon. So we do the Radiothon later in the year, and that's when we go hardcore asking for you to subscribe to Triple R. April amnesty is sort of more of a bit of a nudge, a bit of a reminder that, hey, we need subscribers to sign on up with the station to, you know, to, to give us some of their hard-earned because that is what keeps this station going. You know, with the exception of the breakfasters, every single broadcaster on Triple R is a volunteer. We do it out of love and passion and the station just cannot be what it is without people subscribing. So April is when we sort of say, are you one of those people who just kind of has a bit of a, bit of a cheeky listener on the side and is never committed financially? We just want to nudge you into, you know, signing up. Do the right thing. The great thing about the great thing about being a subscriber during April actually is fewer people do it, so you've got more chance to get one of the prizes. There's um there's a number of really impressive prizes on offer, and if you're into into film, and we were, we, we were hoping that if you listen to the show, you are sort of vaguely into film. Um, <laughs> my place of employment, the Melbourne yeah, International true. Film Festival, are offering a mini pass to this year's festival. So that, that's just one of a whole range of terrific terrific prizes. Uh, even if this show is your only connection to the station, um, even if you just listen to this as a podcast, becoming a subscriber is is really really important. So so please head over to the Triple R website or or call nine three double eight one zero two seven during office hours and sign up. And um, you might want to sort of nudge that that friend or relative or acquaintance who you know is a freeloader into doing the same. Okay, let's talk about some films. Tonight on the show, we're going to look at the new live-action Ghost in the Shell film starring Scarlett Johansson. We're also going to take a look at the Academy Award-nominated A Man Called Uwe, which has been a massive hit in its home country of Sweden. But first, something a bit closer to home. Zach's Ceremony is an Australian documentary directed by filmmaker Aaron Peterson, not to be mistaken with the actor Aaron Peterson. The subject of the film is Zach Dumaji, an Indigenous boy who lives in Sydney with his father and siblings. We are introduced to Zach when he's 10 years old and then follow him throughout his adolescence and teenage years, building up to when he must undertake his initiation ceremony, which not only sees him transitioning into adulthood, but also embracing his Indigenous heritage. His father, Alec Dumaji, appears extensively throughout the film as a highly influential figure in Zach's life, as well as being a respected activist and tribal lawman among his people. He is also the film's concept creator and associate producer. What did we all make of Zach's ceremony? Oh, I was uh, very taken 
by this film. Um, I, I understand it premiered at MIFT, did it, last year? I, in Victoria it did uh, as well. In, in, it may have screened uh, at Sydney first. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it, okay. it, it screened at festivals last year, uh, internationally so and domestically. I remember there and, being quite good murmurings about it, but I have to confess I'd largely forgotten about it until I noticed, oh, uh, uh, I guess it's an exclusive release to Nova, isn't it? One in of those Victoria things is, that yeah. sneaks in and... I thought, oh, we don't get enough of these sorts of stories here. And, and when they do materialise, um, films, often documentaries about Indigenous folk here, uh, they tend to come and go all too quickly. And I think one of the real joys of having this show, actually, is having a platform to uh, put a bit of a spotlight on these films that otherwise too readily escape attention. I think last year we had Put a Pari in the Rainmakers, was that the I think that was time? a couple of years ago, maybe. A couple maybe. of years ago, even. Oh, or maybe yeah. the restart of last year, yeah. yeah. That was an excellent doco. It was, and th- this is... For mine as as well, it, it's uh, I feel it, it is quite captivating in terms of just a simple storytelling uh, narrative, sim- a simple narrative structure to it. But I, I also feel that for folks like me who have who are yet to really get out of urban Australia or to really quite, um, I haven't really got much out of Victoria pockets of South Australia. This is uh, extremely educational, and it's an education I and doubtless thousands of others are sorely lacking. We. I mean, I understand that there are certain um, aspects to Indigenous life that are very much secret uh, business. And curiously, this film actually hints at, at show, showing some things that ordinarily are not uh, permissible to show, which I, I actually found very intriguing. There is some uh, of the ceremony once we finally get there that is shared with us as viewers, which I found very intriguing. And I'm not sure if it's at all ethically um, dubious isn't quite the right word. That's a bit strong, but um, yeah, it's uh, he was I, granted. He was granted access. access yes, but it, it seemed like it was a bit fly on the wall because we didn't really know what was going no. on. We no, just got to have snippets. a look at a few little bits yeah. and pieces. Yeah. yeah, but Zach's a very compelling protagonist here. He starts off uh, quite an adorable young. I think he's was he ten when we first mm. met. Ten when we first met him. Yeah, yes. and there's there's none of that obnoxious teen side. To his persona yet developing, <laughs> which I, that's going to happen to anybody. Come on, teenagers are horrible. Uh, they uh, are. They're all so serious. Yeah. My God. Yeah. <laughs> drama, drama, drama. Um, that, uh, like they've got the whole of their lives ahead of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for what that's worth. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what, what's been left for them by several generations above? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, I was very touched by his. Um, there's a beautiful father-son relationship at the outset of this film which becomes uh, a little tense uh, over the course of Zach's ageing and the, the more that he wishes this ceremony to be approved so that he can uh, undergo this initiation and, and notionally become a man. I mean, that's really stressed that that is what is required for him to become a man. Um, the more he approaches that date, the more he starts to fall under the thrall of just the usual teen stuff, a bit of mischief, um, trouble with the law and general bad attitude. <laughs> and... Uh, Interestingly, uh, did you find that that seems to happen mainly when he's in the city? There's that p- push-pull between mm. him being in Damaji, which is um, uh, sort of rife with its own problems anyway, but he seems to be a more settled team when he's there compared to Sydney. That's when he starts to become the party boy and sneak out for girls. Starts to act out. Yes. Yeah. yeah, there was that. But then, I mean, actually what was really possibly the scariest thing I saw in this film, the most illuminating was the a bit of a backstory about this little township in the middle of nowhere, Dumaji, uh, where um, the Christian missionaries had 
for many years just totally or very come very close to severing the people's their ties with their their culture with their heritage and their stories and their song lines and uh, their their way of life and there was some terrifying footage of these holier than thou missionaries just mm-hmm. explaining their notion their supposed do gooder activities and it just made me furious I think that was only from the 80s as well, which in terms of time isn't that long ago. Yeah, it's a, I can do- say. It's a docker now. Yeah. Think I think was made for the ABC yeah, not yeah. that long ago or about the stolen generation. Yeah. Yeah. I think there was some older footage within that as well. Yeah. Though, but, it, yeah, it just made me uh, very angry. Uh, but it did also help set the scene to explain uh, how difficult it is for a lot of people there to really be properly in touch with their culture um, not least just for the interference of, of uh, Christians, but uh, also just for all manner of other problems that um, the uh, colonial life has foisted upon these people, uh, all sorts of distancing from their their law, the law of their land, and, um, and with f- uh, terrible, fatal consequences for many members of community. And there's an extremely sad coda to the film just outlining how many folks who we might catch glimpses of in the course of the film actually don't survive the making of the film. Mm. And it's just kind of gut-wrenching, really. It's it's interesting because um, I felt it didn't... uh, It was really... It was about um, uh, Zach and it did did keep its focus quite well. Um, At times, Alec almost took over, but I think that's just with him being such a charismatic gent and yeah Yeah. oh sorry that is his yeah uh, Zach's father um being such a charismatic renaissance man really uh he's he's a does a bit of everything and uh wasn't scared to have a bit of a cry on camera and things like that that um uh and and as as it went on, you know, with Zach becoming more of an introspective teenager as well. So Alex Alex kind of comes to the fore even more. Um, but there were a couple... It didn't labour sort of Indigenous issues. It didn't become an Indigenous issue film. It was really through just about through their eyes. But there were a couple of points like the, the missionaries that you talked about, which was, yeah, the very scary stuff, and also about the... Um, alcohol management program mm. or something that was brought into, I think the date was 2003 in, in Queensland where uh, if uh, if an Indigenous person was caught with a full strength, uh, strength drink uh, in the front yard of their house. Of their own property. Of their own property. Yeah, on they, their own land. On their own yeah. land. They could be fined. Forty-four thousand dollars. Well, I think it was something like forty-four thousand one hundred and twenty-five. Yes. Something yeah. ludicrously specific. It, it's a figure bizarre. you can't wrap your head around. Something yeah. incredible. But that also reminded me of really of the thirteenth after we spoke about that mm-hmm. recently, and it is, uh, you know, a, a entrenched form of slavery. Yeah. Really, to L- laws, laws for to... different people. You know. Um, but there wasn't a lot of that that went on in this film. It was um, focused. It, it kind of, it started, I thought it was going to more unfold like a Michael Apted 7-Up sort of thing um, in terms of following this child who, when he first speaks at age 10, is so utterly confident and charismatic. Yeah, mm. so, so much so. Um, but it, it, that 
was kind of loose. It didn't sort of follow... That wasn't sort of the, so much the structure of it. Um, I don't know how they worked out their their shooting time, whether what the access was or how this unfolded, but it felt a little clunky in its structure in that way. Um it felt a little bit rough and ready, I thought. It wasn't to its detriment, but I don't think it's a good idea to go in expecting that to be the focus, which is, yeah, from the pitch. It's, it's a bit yeah. of a rough around the edge doco. It, yeah. it actually took me a little while to really warm to it, and that's because I did find both Zach and Alec, his father, strangely performative and just seemed to be saying all the right things. And, and I, mean, that, I mean, they were so kind of... I don't know what I was expecting and then I started to get really worried is, is this some kind of unco- unconscious sort of, you know, white liberal guilt or privilege thing, expecting one thing and being presented with another and that may have been what was going on inside me but but I, they seemed very, a bit too slick and rehearsed in the way they were talking to camera and I enjoyed the film more when we saw the relationship a little bit more fractured and frayed and they started arguing and things weren't so clean cut. Um, Alec is a really large presence in this film and a little bit overwhelming at points I found. That's what I thought too, Didn't surprise me when I found out he kind of not only is the subject of one of the key subjects of the film but was very much behind the making of the film and and pushing it through. Um, But, you know, overall though, look, it certainly does come together and, I mean, seeing seeing that limited scenes from the actual ceremony did actually feel quite special and I felt quite privileged being able to see that. I heard an interview recently between Alec, the father, and Aaron, the director, here on The Breakfasters, um, which is, I think it's on the Triple R Facebook page right now you can link straight to that where they talk to these guys and they were saying they very much did have to get the approval and um and um the, the comfort you know they had to get the community happy with them that they're going to do the right thing um especially aaron being you know a, a white guy so i think all that footage we saw was highly ethical because the community okayed it and gave them their blessing and, and, and permission yeah that's it. and that itself is very special to see to see that stuff I actually did watch the film thinking it was the other Aaron Peterson, so that kind of... That's why I made it disclaimer at the start. I'm glad you yeah, did. It's one letter yeah, difference, T one, and D. One letter yeah. and uh, <laughs> a different culture, which yeah. kind of gives a, a different, um, unfortunately or fortunately, a different angle to it, especially in terms of being able to film that, that ceremony. But what you were saying about Alec as well being sort of... Um, overwhelming at some stage, not not in a bad way, I don't want to say that, but I felt when he went away, there was one point where Zach sort of went a little awry um, and uh, he left with his stepmother and his four sisters, I think. Oh, no, two sisters and one brother. We yep. don't hear anything about the sisters. That was a kind of interesting um, There's thing. a lot of gaps in the story, I thought, actually. Yeah, which yeah. I kind of didn't know why, but anyway... Um, and Alec goes to America to hang with the North American Indians for three months, which is quite a considerable time. And I, I'm guessing that they didn't focus on that at all because it is Zach's story, but I wanted to know. I just wanted to know what happened to him over this, this time. It was just natural curiosity and Alec being so compelling. But I think the best materials when they're in the community up the far north yeah. of Australia on their traditional lands and we see that, 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 that their lifestyle there. And another thing that Alec and Aaron said in this interview that did with the Breakfasters was that they really wanted this film to show the very positive side of those communities because often we just get shown the negative side. Yeah. Um, it makes a really... I think this makes a very interesting companion piece with Another Country, the 2015 film by Molly Reynolds that Rolf Deheer... Uh, Produced uh, along with um, along with Peter 
Uh, Didja, who is an indigenous man from that, that area as well. Oh, they're, they're more Arnhem Land, so a bit further uh, west to where this yeah. film is set. Yeah. But, um, but, but that is a film that I think focuses more on some of the, the social problems of the area, where this one, I think, shows us a sort of happier community. And I think that those are both really... They're both important, valid films that we should be seeing and thinking about. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm wondering... Because uh, this gets into really uh, awkward territory, but I, I do wonder, as, as we know, that the filmmaker is not someone from that community. It's a, someone who's quite other to them. And whether preserving some of the ceremony is is also meant to serve some sort of, not exactly anthropological um, function, but to serve as at least documentation of something that might, there is a real fear, could otherwise be lost actually to posterity because uh, of dwindling numbers of people who are of that community and who um, fully engage with it and who survive. Uh, the, the, there, are, there are quite a, a number of people, as I mentioned before, who, who clearly passed during mm. the making of this film over the mm. six or seven years I think it was filmed over. And, and we see that history where these yeah. people were actively encouraged to abandon their culture. Yeah, so I, I do wonder, I actually wonder if this might be something we see something become something of a trend that other uh, nations peoples and within australia start to look for filmmakers to document their um uh imperiled cultures and their practices and their dances and artwork and and uh secret business canada canada does it Mm. Yeah, yeah, I've seen awful lot of short films. There's a, there's a fund in Canada to help tell the stories of the the the, the um, uh, original inhabitants from Canada. So yeah, yeah, I think it is happening. I mean, certainly, there are linguists here uh, trying to preserve language because mm-hmm. there are so many languages in this country. No one knows them. Really. <laughs> no. mm. um, something like ninety eight, I think. Is there ninety eight indigenous languages? Something ridiculous. Yeah. That, but then that, this that does number. get into really just potentially quite fraught area in terms of business that is meant to be secret. I mean, mm. yes, you might want to preserve it to make sure it survives, but then who can view it, who has access to it, who should have access to it, and should should we, we're a room here full of white people, should we see this? I, it, it, this gets yeah. into really complex... How do, you bridge, how do you bridge that divide to facilitate understanding? And yeah. at what point do you are you in trouble of appropriation and... Yes. And, um, yeah, you're right, witnessing something that you're not meant to witness. It's a really tricky issue. I mean, I think this film is very specific that the footage we're seeing, they got the blessing to, to yes. include and show. That, that is made yeah. explicit. So, yeah, yeah I, do, I do just wonder what is the future of this sort of filmmaking and, uh, look, I mean, I'm keen mm. to find out. Yeah. You've been listening. Sorry, you're still are listening to to Plato's Cave. <laughs> Hopefully, we're still. leaving. We're not finishing up the show just Don't yet. Go. Don't go. <laughs> with, with Thomas Cerise and Emma, we're going to be talking about Ghost in the Shell uh, in just a moment. You are listening to Plato's Cave. Uh, before we go any further, you wanted to do a bit of a tribute, Cerise, to a filmmaker who's passed away, who whose work I am not at all across. So I'm going to stay oh, out of this. I did. I've got a, just a little shout out to the great Radley Metzger. I mean, a ripe old age of 88. He's just passed up. But he is a very key figure in uh, sort of a high-end erotic cinema in the 60s and 70s. <laughs> I don't know why I'm not across him. And, and, and why is this <laughs> sniggering in the room already? Um, just at the mention of the word, <laughs> phrase erotic cinema. But he, he was a, a really fascinating uh, figure. Uh, cut his teeth uh, as actually preparing trailers for the company that now is Criterion Films, for Janus, uh, often preparing trailers for the uh, release into America of films that sometimes probably only got released there because they were salacious <laughs> by American standards, even though they were by Ingmar Bergman or other uh, weighty figures in, in 
the film canon. But he, he carved out a great niche for himself with films like The Licorice Quartet, Camille 2000, Score, and uh, a number of others, really exploring the actually a quite vivid realm of sexuality, not just a sort of heteronormative sort of thing by any stretch, and, and always extremely artfully and with ludicrously good-looking aristocratic casts uh, in amazing locations and with incredible set design. Um, there are some sex scenes in the Licorice Quartet that actually have to be seen to be believed, including one that takes place in a room that is... Uh, it's a dictionary. The entire room has just got letters and words and phrases and definitions strewn over the floor, the ceiling and everywhere and lots of play with mirrors. And the guy was kind of a, a somewhat unsung genius who then also made a, a big name for himself in hardcore under the name Henry Paris, only to come back into the mainstream fold with a very successful Cat in the Canary, which, Emma, you've just watched, I do believe. I did watch it. That is a very unusual little film. It's not a, a classic trajectory. But with Honor Blackman, we love Honor Blackman. Yeah, pussy galore. <laughs> You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. The new Ghost in the Shell film is a live-action US adaptation of the Japanese manga series by Masamune Shiro, which first began publication in 1989. There have been several adaptations of various story arcs from the series across a variety of media, most notably the original 1995 animated Ghost in the Shell film by director Maramu Oshi. This new film borrows the basic structure and storyline from that film, plus many of the characters and some entire sequences. Set in a future where the majority of humans have enhanced their bodies with cybernetics, Scarlett Johansson plays Major, an elite agent from an anti-terrorism unit whose entire body is synthetic. The only human aspect of her is her brain and her soul, or her ghost. Major and her team get caught up trying to stop and track down a hacker who is killing off scientists from a company that is the world leader in developing the type of technology that are made the Major's body possible. Beat Takashi Kitano, Michael Pitt, Pilu Ashbake and Juliette Benoche are among the co-stars. Now, did we all come to this with knowledge of the original film or the mm-hmm. other media? Yeah. The yeah, film. Will, I did. Not, yeah. the, not the manga, but the anime, yes. Yeah, because yeah, there's actually been a number of films. There's been a TV series, there's been a computer game, but it's that 1995 film that was kind of a bit pretty groundbreaking in terms of Japanese animation hitting the West and also popular uh, cyberpunk fiction. And from this part of the world, a, a cyberpunk work that wasn't uh, William Gibson. Yeah. You know, it wasn't <laughs> from a, an American English speaker, but from a very specifically Japanese context. Yep. Because around that time I was reading quite a bit of William Gibson and generally digging on it and uh, yeah. one or two other authors. And But then at, at, I guess at a similar time to the original anime, uh, Tetsuo must have come out as well, another yeah. totally mind-blowing um, Japanese take on uh, the merging of, of man and machine. And with, When did Akira uh, come out? Was that? And that was, yeah, roughly around, around the, the same time. Maybe yeah. a bit earlier. A still. little bit before, yeah. 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 But the, the West did have films like Robocop and Blade Runner, which in Total mm. Recall, which was dealing with this kind of stuff as well. Yeah. But I, I think the, the Japanese Ghost in the Shell in 95 kind of maybe elevated it to a, a sort of. <sighs> Maybe philosophical or cerebral level. I, I don't know. As much as I love all those films, that, that that had a sort of far more serious and kind of lofty and almost obtuse kind of focus on some of these some of these themes as well. Yeah, 
I think that it, it was also the manga was kind of the shiz at the time. Like everyone was, well, everyone in a certain scene was completely over, um, all over it and talking about it. And yeah. so it, it, it kind of, when you wanted to do this film, Thomas, I was <laughs> apprehensive. Um, uh, I think because of all that. And, um, but, uh, I think that it's interesting because at that time as well, like Akira and all those uh, Tetsuo and all these these Japanese animes that came out, they, they seemed to be able to do things that was impossible in film at that time or way too expensive just beyond the realms of technology. And what I found interesting with um, this film is that it seemed to eclipse what was possible in the anime and create uh, a, a even denser crazier, larger world than was in the original. I don't think that's um, saying this is better than the original or it's just a different time and a different take on it. But I did find this to be um, visually absolutely astounding. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm along those lines as well. I, I was very excited when I saw the trailers. I'm not normally a trailers kind of person, but... <laughs> It was also Scarlett Johansson in the lead, and we may touch on some of the issues yeah. that, about that. But I, 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 I love her as an action star. I mean, she's she's the best thing in the Marvel films. She was great in Lucy, and I was going to ask, what did you think of Lucy? Because I adored Lucy as you? a bonkers action film. You loved it. I love Lucy. I love Lucy. Yeah, <laughs> um, and, and yeah. I kind of have, I have a similar love for this this version of Ghost in the Shell as well. It's a kind of a bonkers action film. Yeah, uh, you know, it, it, it look it doesn't go as deep. Or complex as the original animation, but I think no. it's, it's it's its own beast. And I, I I'm not one of these people who compares adaptations to source material and say because it's different, it's therefore no good. Yeah, it's a very different beast, and I found it so exhilarating and, and gorgeous to look at. So did I. Yeah, I rewatched the original over the weekend, and it's still a great film, but for very very different, different reasons. reasons. Yeah, yeah, I haven't seen that original for the longest time. I, I gather this is meant to be more an adaptation of the manga rather than a remake of the. F- the, the anime. Uh, I don't know if it, I think that's yes particularly and no. consequential either. Yeah. But yeah, there are, as I think you flagged at the outset, there are some sequences, sequences they've done verbatim. Yeah. And her falling backwards over uh, from a skyscraper down to the, the, the depth below and somehow into, the, into some sort of digital. Yeah. Form some digital analog merged form. Her creation, um, her creation yeah. scene as well is yeah. pretty much from the that's original. Like, yeah. And the whole bit with yeah. the, the, the rubbish truck. Drivers, yes, where, where they get hacked and, and the spider tank at the end, the spider, spider tank. tank, which is actually quite daft but yeah. enjoyably so. It's it, it's interesting though these it's sort of doing this comparison speak. I found that the that this version of uh, Ghost in the Shell made me think of not of its original 1995 film, but more of two other films, Blade Runner mm. and The Matrix, absolutely more than yep. anything. And in in fact. Um, this got me excited again for the next Blade Runner, Runner film um, because it's just so you can just see how that that world can will probably be built on and um, the 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 screen technology that was in the street scenes of Blade Runner that in Ghost in the Shell is now these huge larger than life holographic holograms yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Inc- absolutely incredible of all the kind of films to build on Blade Runner in the years since Blade Runner yeah. I reckon this is one of the ones that's done it the most successfully I think so as well visually anyway are, visually yeah, yeah. but yeah. the but the mood is 
is definitely there. And for me, someone who can get very overwhelmed by the noise of some films, uh, despite the fact that this was like a visual onslaught, I found that there was a great clarity to it and some really, really unique visuals. Those geisha visuals at the start were incredible. The geisha robots, you mean? Yeah, the, great, yes. the geisha robots. And, yep. But that... That scene, um, I because uh, we banged we banged on a bit about uh, CG in in previous shows. I read something that they were actually mechanical effects in that scene. That's why they look so cool. They look mm. so good. Yeah. I have to say though, of all the films to be dominated by CG and to have the figures entering that little bit of that uncanny valley thing, yeah, this is an appropriate film for that exactly. weirdness. Exactly, exactly, because it is a weird world. Yeah, and, and it's also a, a digital. Uh, it's an extension on our digital. Existence, so it makes Nicely sense. Said, yeah. yeah, it makes sense. And uh, a lot of the time, the camera is trained on something that we might wonder if it's even there. Yet, is entirely looking to fetishize a particular body. I mean, Scarlett Johansson's body here, if yeah. it is even there, um, <laughs> yes. whether as character or as performer. But there's an awful lot of um, very precise posturing of her self within the frame whether it's before she's about to become mobile and, and you know, she is a spectacular in motion. But the film, I'm sure this is extremely typical to um, the anime, to the genre previously. There, you know, there's a lot of male gaze action of a, of a very classical, uh, well-formulated <laughs> variety going but on. You know what, I reckon film. less so than the original I agree. Did you happen to notice in this film she doesn't have nipples? No, and, and the, the, the original animation <laughs> film kind of starts off with close-ups on her nipples. Nipples, yeah. As they burst through that, that film as she, the robot body is being formed. Her, oh, body, forgotten. Yeah. Yeah. Her body wasn't, uh, isn't very sexualised. It is very much about being the Barbie doll mould of a body and that's sort of her relationship with, um, with uh, what's the character's name? Pillow um, Batu. Oh, Batu. Yes, he's a lovely is, character. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent character. In both versions, he's a fantastic yeah, character. Yeah, an excellent character. I was really impressed with what he did. And um, that warmth of that relationship without being sexual in mm. any way, um, I thought was just fantastic. Well, one, one of the mm. key bits of dialogue in this new film is that you have my consent. This yes. Every time something's going to be done to her body, they have to get her consent. And it even becomes a bit of a you know catch cry in the film, you know, you have my consent. Yeah. And I mean, it's or so you blatant. don't have my consent. Yeah. But <laughs> It's, it's really blatantly addressing this idea of who owns her body. Even if it's an artificial cyborg body, it still belongs to her and, you know, she's going to... She's going to mow you down if you, <laughs> if you tamper with her without without her consent. Yeah, they had some beautiful uh, renderings of cities as well. I kind of felt like it was um, modelled on Shanghai. I think it was an amalgamation of a whole lot of cities, but it yeah, felt lo- like Hong Kong. In well, there, a lot of it was yeah. Wellington, in fact. It was shot in uh, Wellington. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, Weta Workshop were responsible, and they're a New Zealand company. They were responsible for the um, Peter Jackson's company. Indeed, for the special effects, but um, that just that with that river through it, like the Bund in um, Shanghai, and the these amazing shots where you kind of look up at these high-rise tenement buildings, and they're, they're this 
feeling dwarfed by these buildings. And then I believe at one stage they have a cemetery, which is looks like it's in a sports stadium, which was a really interesting way to to pit a cemetery. So it's a, they've really thought through the worlds very well um, and, and done something a little different to the original film. So, yeah, like we said, that's good. Because exactly where is this mm. set anyway? It's in a place where there's a government that is just the government. The and government, It's not a yeah. nation and there are people of all manner of... of Race and creeds there, but um, it's just one great morass of seething humanity. Yeah. Not a lot of it hostile, really, actually. <laughs> With Takeshi Kitano, who yeah. was, it felt like this was sort of this reverential. Um, expression of to him because as the you know the elder statesman of Japanese cinema now and there was very much this respect given to him in that role. I think there was a lot yeah. of respect to the origins of this. Now the, the, this film was before it was released accused heavily of whitewashing casting yeah. Scarlett Johansson in this role and Oh, yeah, I, I didn't have a problem with it. I don't want to rush through this, but we should discuss yeah. it. Well, yeah, I didn't have a problem with it either, but mm. you know, maybe that's my privilege. But but the character that she's based on is white with round blue eyes. I mean, the original cyborg in the 1995 film isn't defined as being Japanese by any means. No. And, and this film kind of presents the idea of a sort of a futuristic cosmopolitan city like we see in European cities today, like Berlin and London, that there is people from all around the world who now occupy these spaces. And but that um, was a kind of – it was the idea of identity as well. I think she sort of had no identity, well, so the, it was appropriate. Mm. Well, it becomes a plot point, which he yes, won't spoil no, as well. But yeah. is that, there, there is a point to it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes, it is aware of its own problematic nature and, and – works that but uh, mm. i just believe different it, i believe it's okay for nations to take on stories from other nations to make it their own and express it in their way just as akira kurosawa did with shakespeare you know he yeah. made shakespeare into samurai epics and, and japan is not exactly a colonized suffering you know country that's been beaten down over history it's, yeah. it's a powerful country and i think that kind of shared using stories from different cultures you know, there are so many amazing sensitivities about it which we must tread carefully on and mm-hmm. and be respectful. But I don't think this film deserves to be the punching bag that it's kind of become. No, yeah. I agree, actually. I, I still find some areas problematic, but I like that the film is aware of them and acknowledges them in its own interesting ways without going into spoiler territory. Yeah, yes. we can't, but it, but it kind of does. Oh, thank yeah. God I'm not the only one who likes this film. <laughs> I feel like everyone's hated it but me. No, I really oh, relaxed really? into it once. I, I mean, the, the visuals were so seductive. And, and I was getting a little kick out of this, knowing that a lot of this was my hometown of Wellington, going, where is it? I, I, I see a hint of it in there somewhere, but there's so much computer enhancement of that, uh, uh, to me, very familiar cityscape too. So, look, it's, it is a thing of beauty, this film. It's uh, quite astonishing. And, yes, it is yeah. Blade Runner elevated somehow visually um how will the blade runner sequel compare visually to this i i, I don't know can it well, match up exactly that's that might be a problem let's hope that's not going to be a problem because this was this was mind-blowing yeah i cannot wait to find out actually yes you're listening to Plato's cave we've been discussing ghost in the shell triple r not for everyone for anyone A Man Called Uwe is a Swedish comedy drama that is an adaptation of a best-selling Swedish novel from 2012 and one of the nominees for this year's Best Foreign Language Film Award at the Academy Awards. The Uwe of the film's title is a 59-year-old man who is suicidal and grieving the loss of his wife. 
He is also incredibly grumpy and antisocial and spends most of his time enforcing the various strict rules he has set up throughout his neighbourhood and berating his neighbours for every minor transgression. However, Uwe begins to get a new lease on life when a new young family moves in and the family's wife and mother in particular, a woman named Pavene, who is originally from Iran, begins to endear themselves towards him. What did you make of a man called Uwe, Emma? I enjoyed it. I did enjoy this. I think it's an incredibly easy watch. Um, it re- that's, it's a very easy film to watch, isn't it? It's a very easy watch. You can see why it's been so popular and, you know, it's taken out a whole lot of awards in Sweden. It's it's the, it's the a crowd pleaser. And, um, you know, the grumpy old man genre, well, that's not something that we're unfamiliar with. That's happened that, well, there was a film called Grumpy Old Men, <laughs> for Christ's sakes. I was thinking, it's more like an, uh, about Schmidt, though. Though, isn't it? It's yeah, it is. Thing. It is. Um, uh, I also kind of felt that he was warranted to be grumpy in a few circumstances, to be totally honest. Um, it's a film that, you know, essentially uh, some of these, sometimes with the these grumpy old men films, we just see the what happens with their grumpiness. Uh, this is one that sort of uh, slowly unfolds and reveals the reasons behind why he is who he is today, um, which I thought I, I think I think it progressed to nowhere that was particularly surprising to me or anything like that. But I don't think that's sort of the point of this film. Um, in your description, Thomas, when you said um, you know that he he befriends the Iranian immigrant um, next door neighbour, it sounds like I think that when you when you say that sort of thing, it sounds like it's a it's going to be a culture clash film or something like that. But You're right. It's played, not about that at all, No, is it? not at all. It really... In fact, it wasn't about that. She could have been anyone. It wasn't about her ethnic persuasion, really. I think... I would argue there was one poignant line. There's one bit of dialogue that is actually has quite... Has a lot of one meaning, bit of, yeah, yes. which is a very nice moment in the film. I think I know the moment you yeah, talk but, but, about. But, yeah, but you're right. That was almost a detail I could have easily left out. Really. Yeah, but it's yep. it's a detail that everyone's. You're going to read a synopsis; it will have that in there. But I think it's important to say that that's not what this this film is about. It's it doesn't play like a social realist film or anything like that. It's very light and colourful. It kind of makes light, not ha ha rollicking laughs, but uh, but makes light of some serious issues um, and manages to handle the tone really well. I think that the film uh, is based on a book, which I believe is a best-selling book as well. Uh, So a lot of people came to this knowing probably what this film was going to be about and how it was going to unfold. It had sort of three moments at the end. I think it really could have ended (laughs) earlier than it did. Um, And it, it seemed to want to make itself a little bit more epic than it was. I think it was it was a nice little film. Um, it, it sort of had a feeling of Coda's kept on being tacked on that um, dragged it out for me and made it a little syrupy too. It was a bit of the Steven Spielberg Coda in the end. See, I'm a sucker for that sort of thing as a rule. I, oh, t- I love this. Look at you. Yeah, this was such a predictable. <laughs> I am an absolute sentimentalist and romantic at heart. Um, yeah, I mean, I saw this film coming a mile off, and mm. every kind of beat was 
you know, was completely recognisable. I felt like I'd seen this film before and, yeah, I really loved it. Yeah. And I think there's really strong performances. The film is ever so slightly almost stylized. It's not quite, but there are just... Yes, yeah. But really it, it makes it quite, enjoyable to watch. It yes. does actually make it really... That estate in itself was particularly interesting. It's almost I've a little seen. bit Edward Scissorhands, isn't yes. it? It's just the kind of formal layout of the estate. And, and I found myself at one point comparing this to Amelie, but it's not really like Amelie at all. It is this kind of very warm, ever so slightly larger than life film, but not too much. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, and I liked all the flashbacks we got to sort of showing him as a young man and, and all the things that led up to him being this way and that he's essentially still a good guy. He's just so bitter and angry for, for reasons, as you said, you kind of start to, to, to very much understand. I, and I actually got some decent laughs out of this. There are a few moments where I did laugh out <laughs> loud. I, I, you know, I'm a big fan of things like Kirby enthusiasm. So I, I, I love these kind of angry old men behaving badly <laughs> stuff. Actually, that's interesting that you should bring up Kirby, your, your enthusiasm, because that is more of the comparison that I would have made it to in some ways. Shall um, I do it? Yeah, an X, X meets Y. This is Amelie meets Kirby, your enthusiasm. <laughs> I love it. That'll make everyone go and see it. <laughs> Bang that on the poster, marketing people. And on that terrible piece of criticism, <laughs> we've got to wrap up the show. I'm sorry we didn't leave enough time there for Uwe, but we got very involved in discussion on those other films. Sure did. Zack Ceremony is currently screening at Cinema Nova, courtesy of Umbrella Entertainment. Ghost in the Shell is on wide release, courtesy of Paramount Pictures. And A Man Called Uwe is on limited release, courtesy of Rialto Distribution. You have been listening to Thomas Cordwell, Cerise Howard and Emma Westwood on Plato's Cave. The podcast version of the show is edited by Faith Everard. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.